The work of this church in the world is realized through the generous financial support of all who call this place home. Along with the gifts and time and talent, ours is a shared ministry. You have a role to play here. Church membership is open to all. For more information, go to uusf.org. Curtis Mayfield wrote the song we just heard in 1965, the year after the March on Washington, inspired by the I Have a Dream vision and the song that followed that speech, the crowd singing their faith that we shall overcome all the racism and violence and divisions that had been laid bare. Much like our experience of the last year, it wasn't that things needed to be laid bare. In some ways, the economic inequality, the threat and reality of violence against black folks, the barriers to equality and to participating in the political process, all of that was there to be seen if you looked. But it took the student organizers and committed activists to stage actions that called all the broken places into the spotlight. And then the violent and vicious reactions to the nonviolent witness, well, it made clear that the abscessed wounds of racism were still very much festering among us. Mayfield's song called the people to be ready you don't need baggage, you don't need a ticket. Not for this train, he sang. Just be ready when the train comes, when the spirit of history calls you, be ready to get on board. John Lewis uses that phrase, the spirit of history, regularly throughout his memoir, Walking with the Wind. I'd never heard it before, though it echoes in the famous words credited to Martin Luther King Jr. in his paraphrase of Unitarian preacher and abolitionist Theodore Parker when King said, the moral arc of the universe is long, but it bends toward justice. In those words too, you can hear the spirit of history idea. This unseen guiding hand that unannounced would one day arrive to call you, to call each of us out of ourselves into service to help bend that moral arc of the universe down to touch the world. I suppose the idea of a spirit of history, the way Lewis describes it, it could be mistaken as something inevitable and irresistible something that happens no matter what. And often in retrospect, we tell some of the biggest turns in history that way. Something of the fairy tale lover in us, I think, likes stories of preordained fate and destiny. But we'd be advised to be careful about those kinds of stories and telling them. I think they hide 
the most important quality of the spirit of history. If you're my age, I don't know if you remember how the story, for instance, of Rosa Parks got told when we were little. I do. This story of the woman who launched the Montgomery bus boycott, the boycott that lasted a year and 15 days from December 5th, 1955 until December 20th, 1956, when the people of Montgomery, mostly black folks in that city, a city that was one of the most segregated and vicious and brutal in the United States, when these folks refused to ride the most accessible and affordable means of transportation to get around town. In fact, 70 to 75% of the ridership of Montgomery buses were its black residents. Instead, they organized carpools and virtual taxi services, thereby gutting the transportation system, working to bring that city slowly to its knees and toward desegregation. Ultimately, a Supreme Court ruling, no doubt influenced by that same moral witness that was happening for a year and 15 days, that ruling finished off the work. It was an amazing victory on all fronts. And remember how it all started, we were told. It began with this one woman, Rosa Parks, who one day got on the bus, tired from being on her feet all day at the department store where she worked. Parks took an open seat, but later, as the bus filled up, was asked to give up her seat to a white woman and refused, was arrested. And the fire of resistance in the city of Montgomery was lit the spirit of history. That version is partially true, but another version of the story is increasingly being told, one with more meat on the bones, you might say. This one about Rosa Parks as a woman already very much trained and committed as a participant in the civil rights movement and a whole community of Montgomery people who had been readying themselves for action, the black community and allied whites. This was a community that had seen the bus boycott work in Baton Rouge, Louisiana that helped desegregate that city. Parks was the secretary of the local NAACP and she had traveled to the famed Highlander School Highlander Folks School in Tennessee, the same one that John Lewis himself would attend and be trained at, and trained there in many things she was, including nonviolent civil disobedience as a tactic. Her story is also a story of how 12 years earlier, Parks had been ordered by the bus driver, James F. Blake, to get off the front door of the bus and enter at the rear door which was sometimes required of blacks riding the bus in Montgomery, and how Blake drove off before Parks had time to get to the back door, and how Parks vowed she would never again ride a bus that Blake drove, and how it was Blake who was driving the bus that faded day that her spirit and her body were tired and Blake who would insist or try to that Parks give up her seat. In other words, on so many levels, Rosa Parks was prepared for that day. 
Not that anyone marked the day on her calendar as the day she'd take up civil disobedience as a practice and endure arrest to make a moral point and how folks would organize to shine the light on that point in history. But how on so many levels she and others had prepared for that day. They just didn't know exactly when it would come. But I expect they all knew that when the train pulled up, the one for which you didn't need a ticket, they were as ready as they could be to get on board. John Lewis's own memoir, it's filled with everything he does from his earliest days, before college and in college, to prepare himself for the work he will ultimately take up. Months of quiet days, his first year in his studies at Nashville American Baptist Theological Seminary, filled with his studies of the Bible, but also these off-campus meetings to prepare deeply in the philosophy of nonviolence and the tactics of it, all the meetings and workshops to prepare his heart and emotions and spirit for what it will mean to love your neighbor, all the famous drills that he and those in training for the sit-ins and freedom rides would do to be able to take the abuse that they knew would come and not return violence for violence, there were months and years of training as an organizer, building a network among fellow students and other leaders, one gathering, one conversation, one conference, one witness time, witness event at a time. And how at each stage he just kept stepping into the work when it presented itself to him. He didn't wait, in other words, to prepare only when the moment did arrive, at which point it would be too late. This reminded me of when I started at UUSF the first summer in 2017. Do you remember there was some white nationalist group that was scheduled to do a rally? Eventually, I think the city decided to allow the group to only gather, I think it was at Chrissy Field. And remember, too, that a lot of the local progressive activists encouraged their allies not to show up. They said it would be more embarrassing for the event to happen with no crowd there than to give that small group the attention of our showing up in protest. But I remember there were some who wanted to go, who understandably didn't want this event to go on without obvious resistance. And I remember a group of us at church who were planning all along at various stages what our response would be to this promised visit by this group. We discussed the situation among us and what we should do. And I remember how Larry Danos, an older member and committed activist of this congregation asked in his inevitable and inimitable calm and humble and deeply concerned way, do these folks who want to go, do they know de-escalation tactics? 
Have they been trained? I fell in love right there with a community who had people like Larry so schooled in how to do the important work of religious witness, that they had the tools philosophically and tactically to be both able to reflect their values and how they showed up and also how to protect themselves in such moments as best they could. The truth is that some of the people who wanted to go to Chrissy Field that day were willing, but they probably weren't ready. Not the way ideally we would be. Reading Lewis's book has reminded me that the work we aspire to do around social change requires us to be preparing ourselves, asking everything from how we can create a shared vocabulary around the work, what shared practices we need, working to foster trust among ourselves and nurture this network of connections with those who will be with us in the work, and how all the reading of books and the conversations after church and the beginnings where we talk about what right relations and accountability might look like here among us and the speakers that we invite to hear about the issues of the days and determine where the levers for change might be. All the showing up to make connections with people in faith in action and the Interfaith Council and all the other local community groups around the city, all the going to Unitarian Universalist gatherings and the leadership trainings we attend, it all makes us more ready, even if, for what, and when, has yet to be revealed. And those moments when we will be called upon to respond in big ways and small, they will happen. They will happen at the table with family over Thanksgiving. Or when you find yourself, as I did, working at the food bank this last year when our state representatives showed up to volunteer too. Or when the press puts a microphone to your face as one did to me last Sunday because they liked the side with love placards that Dennis and David and I carried at the rally at Civic Center in support of our Asian friends and neighbors and loved ones and decrying the racist violence that is once again on the rise in this city. The moments are right there. And so we are the people who prepare. The point of all of this was driven home to me yesterday and not in a good way. Yesterday, at the memorial service for Ken Keep, which was gorgeous and joyful and sad all at once, at the end, we created time for sharing. And one person shared a lot of memories, but among them a story that was filled with coded racial language and biases of the kind that we Unitarian Universalists are committed to interrupting because of the harm they do. But in the moment, I could not think of what to say or how to say it. To be sure, my guard was down when it happened. 
We'd just been mourning a beloved friend. This person was a guest among us. The intent was not to do harm, of course. But I knew that the people of color in particular, but all of us deserved some act to halt the moment and interrupt the harm. And here I was, irony of ironies, in the midst of preparing a sermon on the importance of being prepared. And I had not prepared for this moment. It struck me how moments when we need to act can hit a bit like an earthquake. How inevitably, when they happen, they shake us off our feet a little, don't they? How there's never any warning when they're about to come. We'll have just been laughing at a silly joke with friends, or we'll have stepped into dinner with clients, and boom, there it is. The woman is being threatened by her boyfriend. A not-so-microaggression takes place among our party. The humanity of the person forced to sleep on the streets is being disregarded and diminished right before our eyes. All of it seemingly out of left field. If so, then like an earthquake, we similarly have to be prepared, right? We have to have run our drills. We have to know in advance where in general we'll go in such moments, what to grab as we head there, what kinds of things to say and how we might frame and say them. Affirm the humanity of the one whose intent is good and name the harm. Distract the abuser by pretending to know the one that they are threatening, or feign a faint or an illness and ask for their help. Speak from the eye and speak our truth. No one else's. Next time, I promise you, I will be prepared. Allison and Meg and Joe and I, we processed what happened after the service. Others who were there and I processed it via text. We agreed to take it to our racial justice task force to discuss and I began asking people I know and trust for thoughts and advice. We're gathering up ideas of how to hold a moment like this in the future. Because Parks and Lewis's lives teach us a lot, but one of the things they teach us and that many of us know from experience is the preparation that allows us to be part of the bending of the moral arc, which never happens by accident. Preparation is that part of the process, as, jo as John Lewis wrote, of giving over one's very being to whatever role history chooses for you. So, Daniel Jackaway will be repeating his workshop on bystander training this spring. Take it. We'll be starting a discussion of a new principle that the denomination is considering to add to our existing seven. Come hear more about it next week and in the weeks ahead. 
The widening the circle report from the Commission on Appraisal, a report written over many years, assessing the racism in Unitarian Universalism and what we have to do to change ourselves to be who we say we want to be, it is available online, read it. And then think about what piece you can bring forward for us to implement here. And maybe you have a training to offer, let us know. De-escalation skills, maybe? Let's do anything we can to deepen our readiness so that when the train comes, the one we don't need a ticket for, we are a people, always ready to get on board. May it be so. The work of this church in the world is realized through the generous financial support of all who call this place home. Along with the gifts and time and talent, ours is a shared ministry. You have a role to play here. Church membership is open to all. For more information, go to uusf.org 